Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. All right, for those of you that have kind of just jumped in on things here, uh, whether you're online or whether you're here, is um, we've been following the movement of the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, eventually hit the promised land. Uh, They could have taken and been there very quickly, but for a number of reasons, God sent them the long way to get home. And there's things he's teaching them. He's trying to develop them from, from what were slaves into warriors, uh, from people who didn't know God to having an understanding of who he is, from uh, tribes and tribalism uh, to nations. And uh, I think it's interesting that there are times when tribes are moved and eventually come together, become nations, and then there are times in nations' history when they begin to revert to tribalism. And you can read into that however you want to as well. So we're exploring this, and today I want to talk to you a little bit about how your life is organized. And as we're exploring, we're just about done with Exodus, so we're going to move into the book of Numbers, and in order to get into the book of Numbers, we're going to go to the book of Hebrews. I know that makes sense. Follow me as we go along here, okay? So Numbers is in the Old Testament. It's called Numbers because um, the very first thing that happens is a census is taken. They count people, and therefore they call it the book of Numbers because that's the very first thing. In fact, most of the very first words or letters or phrases in these first five books or so are what the name of the book is. So Numbers is the name of the book because of the census and the counting that they're going to do. They've been a year um, sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, and um, now they're organized. They've organized their leadership. They're going to begin some other organizational aspects, and they've learned something about God. Now, the reason why I want to begin, though, in Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, is because the writer of Hebrews gives us a deeper understanding of what is taking place. So let's begin there, all right? In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, it says something interesting. It says, that first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. Now, let's talk about the first covenant. I know a lot of you have really wondered, why is it called the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, here's part of the discussion about that. It was the Old Covenant, okay, or, or Testament um, that was done in, in the time of Sinai and Moses. But what the writer of Hebrews is going to take us into is a New Covenant, a New Testament. Now, a covenant is something that's made between a superior to an inferior, I'm going to guarantee certain things for you if you'll guarantee something for me. But it's me giving to you, basically. And so God is giving of himself um, and his provision and protection for the Jewish people. They, in turn, are going to give their allegiance and their faithfulness to him is how it's supposed to work. So there's an Old Covenant or Old Testament. Now Hebrews and the New Testament is talking to us throughout Christ about a New Covenant or a New Testament. So anyways, this has been established and a place of worship here on earth. What's it talking about? It says there were two rooms in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a, um, uh, it was a kind of a tent structure. 
It was the first worship structure that the Jews had established from Mount Sinai and from what they'd been told there. And according to here, it's saying in the first room there was a lampstand, a table, sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was this curtain. Behind the curtain was a second room called the most holy place. So here's holy, and then here's really holy. In that room was a gold incense altar, wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, let's stop here for a minute. Um, let's put up a picture real quickly of the uh, tabernacle, if you have that up there for me real quick. Okay, so they're establishing a place of worship, and they have a structure that God has told them. Most of the book of Exodus, in fact, is laying out how the structure is supposed to be, um, the artisans that create it, the guidelines for operation in it. And it basically consists of several things. You've got an outer courtyard. And this outer courtyard, that little square thing with the rods coming out of it, would have been considered an altar of burnt offerings. And so the very first thing as you come into worship would have been animals being sacrificed. Pretty bloody, pretty messy. You know, a lot of nasty stuff going on with that. That would have been your first introduction to worship. There's a reason why you didn't experience that this morning here. We'll talk about that a little later. But this was their first experience, and every time they'd enter in. Now, beyond that was a cleansing place, that little pool there. They could wash their hands. So there was an outer courtyard and then an inner courtyard or inner place. And um, the priest could gather in this outer area. Only one could go all the way into uh, these two other sections. The first one was called the holy place, that rectangular yellow spot there. There was some furniture in there we won't go into. There was a, that, that second purple line you see there, was a heavy veil. Now, inside that was the most holy place, also referred to as the Holy of Holies. In there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, one other thing to note, this is the very first. It's tents around the outside, or like fabric uh, walls around the outside, and then fabric tent of some type in there, in that gold area of it. This was the same modeling that God gave that was to be the modeling for the temple that you see eventually built in Jerusalem, all right? So this is a foreshadow of that. Now, in the middle of, of, of these things, the, and I want you to catch that, first you experience this brazen altar where there's a bloody sacrifice being offered, and then there's a cleansing, and then you move deeper into actually the high priest going all the way in to experience the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is this gold chest. Really, it's a wood chest, but it's covered in gold. It's about four feet long, about two feet high, about two feet wide. It's got little rings on either side of it. And um, you can put a rod through each one. And a certain tribe called the Levites were mostly priests. There was a specialized group called Kohathites. You don't care about that. Um, they were designated to particularly carry the ark. It was never to be put on a, a cart or a wagon. It was to be carried by people, but never to be touched. That's why the, the rods. Because the ark itself... Uh, had these, this gold covering stuff on top of it, on this lid, had these two angels facing one another. And this place in the middle was called the mercy seat. And when it was in the Holy of Holies and when the sacrifices were being offered, God's very presence would rest in that place. Now here's an interesting thing to keep track of for a minute here as we don't lose track of this. The last time God actually resided with a people or encountered on an ongoing basis of people was Adam and Eve. This is the first time since Adam and Eve that God has now engaged a people group with a physical presence on an ongoing basis. Adam and Eve screwed that up. We're going to see how the Israelites handle this as we go along here. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and this would have been one of, you might not know, three arcs that were in the Scripture. You might know the first one. is 
Noah's Ark, which was basically the Detroit Zoo on water, okay? It was a big boat. The second ark, similar language, would have been um, Moses when he was a baby, and they put him in a little boat to send him down the Nile to get caught by Pharaoh's daughter. That was the second ark. Both of those have a relationship to like a boat-type, carrying-type structure. This third ark we see, the Ark of the Covenant, means more like a cabinet. It means more like a box. It means something that is holding something. What is it holding? Well, in Hebrews, they told us. Um, it's covered with gold on all sides. Inside the ark is this gold jar containing manna. Now, manna was, as we said before, like a wonder bread that showed up every morning for the people on the ground. It was just an amazing provision of God that went on forever, practically. And they were, <coughs> they were blessed or ministered by that. So there's a gold jar of it that was kept in there. The other thing it is, is Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves. Now, a staff is like just a stick that you trimmed out. It's dead. It's not root anything. It's a stick. It's a dead stick. At one point in time, uh, as the people are, are hanging out here, some of them get upset and say, look, we don't need just Aaron as the high priest to approach God on our behalf or Moses and his specialness. All of us are basically priests before God. Any of us can approach God however we want and do this type of stuff. And so there's a challenge that goes on here that doesn't end well for those individuals. But as part of the discussion, um, there are 12 uh, sticks or rods gathered from the 12 tribes, and they're put inside the holy place there. And um, they show up the next morning, and one of those is the rod of Aaron. They show up the next morning, and all those sticks are still dead except for Aaron's. Aaron's has actually sprouted leaves. It's spontaneously become alive again. It's an amazing thing, and it confirms that not only is Aaron the high priest, but you don't approach God just any old way that you want. You approach under the guidelines he sets. So there's this jar of manna, God's provision inside the ark. There's this rod of Aaron that has sprouted again saying, hey, you only approach God in certain ways. And then there's finally these uh, two stone tablets. I don't care what Mel Brooks says. There were not three. There were only two stone tablets and ten commandments. This is the statement of covenant, the agreement God has made. You keep these ten commandments we're told sometimes the things of the past, the Old Testament, don't apply to today, but the moral code still does. It's still wrong to murder someone that is innocent. It's still wrong to lie. It's still wrong to have any other God before God. Those things still hold. Don't let anybody tell you that it's just in the past, it's old, we know better today. There's a moral code that stands. So these three visual aids are in this gold box that's to be carried around. God's provision, don't forget about it. The rod, don't approach any old way. You approach certain ways as far as God's concerned. And then finally, this statement of covenant, of our agreement, these visual aids were right there in the middle of all those things. And then there's these two cherubim that are on top and that mercy seat. And because of this, the stone tablets, that's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. Now notice there's nothing of any technology. There were no death rays that shot out of this, like uh, uh, Indiana Jones would have us think. Um, there was the power of God. There was a presence. And if you touched this because of the holiness of it, you died. But it didn't go seeking you out. It didn't go targeting you. You had to particularly be profane towards it. So this is what is present in this setting. Now, having said that, let's go back into Numbers and start up. Numbers chapter 2. Right at the beginning, very first verse. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses and Aaron. When the Israelites set up camp... 
Each tribe will be assigned its own area. The tribal divisions will camp beneath their family banners, that's important, on all four sides of the tabernacle, but at some distance from it. And then the chapter closes by saying in verse 34, so the people of Israel did everything as the Lord had commanded Moses. Each clan and family set up camp and marched under their banners exactly as the Lord had instructed them. So, this next picture I want to show you gives it a snapshot. The tabernacle's in the center with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of that. And then the tribes were set up on either side. It's estimated there were somewhere between 800,000 or 2 million people, as high as, high as 2 million, that were part of this journey. Okay, I'm part of this grouping of people. In the 12 tribes, they were separated off um, and divided on either side. Now, here's the thing that's interesting to note I want you to keep track of because we'll come back to this at some point. And there will be a test. Okay? So, on the left side, Ephraim leads. On the top side there in the front, Dan leads. On the right side, Judah is leading and coming behind us is Reuben here is going to be holding up the back end. Now, they lead those different tribes, Ephraim, Dan, Judah, and Reuben. They are not organized in regards to one another. They are organized in regards to the Ark of the Covenant. That is how they are organized in around the tabernacle. So at the center of their camp, as they've organized their leadership, as they organize the camp, it's around this. When they march, it's around this. So if you were to take a, a top view, uh, as they march across the desert, you'd see this like giant plus sign with the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle at the middle of that. And, um, or a cross, if you want to look at it that way. This is how these things would be organized. Everything was organized around and at the very center the tabernacle, the place of worship, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. We live in a society today that has placed ego and attitude um, as kind of the number one, a bit of a change from what used to be. We see it in entertainment, we see it in business, we see it in uh, um, uh, politics. There's a word, truly, that was written in the New Testament that was written in Greek. The word that is translated as I is translated in Greek and spelled E-G-O, ego. And so you can guess where we get a word. We get the word ego, which is the center of who I am. It's how I see myself. And if I exalt and lift myself up, we say we have a big ego, but it can just be how you view yourself. And this idea of putting ourselves at the center of so much has been a leading edge of our culture in business, politics, entertainment. Management consultant Ken Blanchard says that sometimes ego is a short uh, word for the phrase edging God out. Back in the 1960s, there was a mayor of the city of Chicago. The guy's name was Richard Daly, for some of you who don't know that history. He was famous for a couple of things, um, most notably for being the last of the really big-time bosses of the city and political controllers. Daly was sharp, he was powerful, and he had an absolutely enormous ego. 
Um, one fall, evidently, there was a speechwriter of his uh, who worked for him, and he came to Daly and he asked for a raise. And Daly was amazed, and they wouldn't have the gall to do that. That this speechwriter, the guy who just simply writes his speeches, would, would want a raise. And he told the guy this quote, I'm not giving you a raise. It should be enough for you that you get to work for me, a great American hero. Speechwriter waited until early November, and then he turned in his one week notice that he was moving on. And Daly was scheduled to give a speech on Veterans Day, and he demanded that the speechwriter complete that task before he left. The speechwriter agreed. Now, Daly was famous for never reading his speeches through ahead of time. He just enjoyed winging it in the moment. And so on the day of the speech, he's going on and on about how valuable our resources and uh, uh, that our veterans are and how forgotten they are. And, and he's reading through the speech and all the wonderful things he's saying. And he says at one point in time, he says, but I haven't forgotten about you. And uh, even though everyone else has forgotten about you, I haven't. In fact, I am today proposing a 17-point program at the federal, state, and local level for us to care about you veterans. Now, there's a crowd of people. The national press is there. Hundreds of people are there. Everyone's really eager to hear what is Daly going to say about this. What is this 17-point program? Daly himself was curious. And so he turns the page on his speech that he'd not read before, and all it says on the next page, all that's left on the remainder of the speech is, quote, you're on your own now, you great American hero. We live in a society that exalts the ego. It says that we're number one, that we are at the center of our world. But the organization of the worship of Israel had God at the center of the camp. Everything was organized not in regards to how they viewed one another, but their distance and their orientation to God. Far from edging God out in ego, God was placed at the center of what Israel was doing and becoming. Now, taking you this far, let me take you now back to Hebrews. Chapter 9. Continuing on, verses 16 through 18. Now, when someone leaves a will, it's necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. Now, wait a minute. There's another word for will. We say that we're going to make our last will and testament. So there's an old testament and a now a new testament he's going to talk about. There was an old will, and there's now a new will. There was an old covenant, and now there is a new covenant a new agreement. So when someone leaves a will, it's necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. And then the will goes into effect only after the person's death. That's got to be linked to that. While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. That is why even the first covenant, he's back talking still, continuing talking about the Ark of the Covenant and all that, that was put into effect with the blood of an animal. There was a sacrifice involved. That, that, that bloodiness that we'd face of the brazen altar, the bloodiness of our own sin and that death that was required, the Passover with the spreading of the blood over the doorposts, even that one required the death of an animal. Something needed to die for the, the covenant to make effect or the will or the testament to take action. And then he goes on in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. And so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He'll come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly wait for him. 
In other words, there was an old covenant made with Israel that was based around a physical ark and a holy of holies and a veil that covered that and only the high priest could go in and, and, and people oriented around it. It was in the center of their lives and what took place. Later, it's the Jerusalem temple that's established. Beautiful, gleaming, incredible, but still this thick veil that would have covered uh, from the holy of holies to anyone else. But what the writer here is saying is now Christ has come and there's now a new covenant, no longer of law, but of grace, a new testament, a new will, and it still requires a death, and Christ is the one that's died and paid for that. And so now when you walked in today, you didn't face the screams of animals and the bloodiness of of the knives and, and the facing of the ugliness of your sin Because Christ paid that price once and for all, and so we don't do that. And as a result, too often we can forget how horrible our sin is. At what cost we have been afforded this grace. It's now a New Testament, a new covenant. No longer is it organized around an ark that would carry these stone tablets. But now Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and 18 say, this is the covenant I'll make with them. This is the covenant that has been made with you if you're a Christian. This is the covenant that God wants to make with you if you're not a Christian or a follower of Christ. This is what agreement he wants to make with you that he sacrificed his life for, that, that he tore that, that veil apart so that there's now access directly to God for all of us He says, this is the covenant I'll make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. Not a stone tablet hidden away in a gold chest carried in the center of the camp, but in your heart, in your mind, in my heart, and in my mind, he will now write those things, transforming who we are, redeeming who we are. And so now we can enter into a place like this without the screams of animals and the bloodiness facing us. Instead, we can enter with a joy. We can enter with a celebration. We can engage God directly. It goes on, and then he adds in verse 17, their sins and lawless acts I'll remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. children of Israel were organized. They organized their leadership. They organized how they'd be encamped, no longer scattered everywhere, but set in a motion around a center point. They were organized in how they marched, again, with that center point. That is a foreshadowing of um, Jerusalem and the temple that's established there as they worship together. It's the same place that Jesus would have spoken and talked about. There was an outer court of praise, an inner court, where there would have been the Holy of Holies. The people gathered all of that. And then Jesus' sacrifice that all this stuff would have pointed towards. And now I want to take you, in these final moments, one step further. The Old Testament numbers, the, the New Testament with Hebrews, making clear what that's pointing towards. And now, finally... The book of Revelation, where all these things would have pointed towards to begin with. And I want to draw your attention to something. So you're in heaven, 
John is, and he's seeing what's going on in Revelation chapter 4. He says there's this throne. God's sitting on this throne, and, and before it's a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. Before this, it says that coming out of the throne was, was um, uh, thunder and lightning. It was very, very frightening. Bohemian Rhapsody for anyone following, okay? So there's thunder and lightning, and, it, and it's scary. It's terrifying. There's all these things going on, and in the front of the throne is a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. And in the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. This was freaky. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings. Their wings were covered also with eyes inside and out. Day after night and after night, they kept saying something. But before we get to there, let's just... For a second, I want you to catch this. There were four beings that are on either side with God on this throne in the middle. And it's a lion. It looks like an ox. It looks like a human face and an eagle. Now, that doesn't connect with you until you know something of rabbinical tradition. You see, in rabbinical tradition, the standard for Judah, and many of you would have known this, the symbol for Judah would have been a lion, the lion of Judah. That of Reuben would have been the likeness of a man or of a man's head. The standard or symbol for Ephraim was the figure of an ox. And that of Dan was the figure of an eagle. Now, if you were remembering and keeping track and taking your notes, then you remember that how the group was organized was all these different tribes, but the ones who led those tribes, whose standards or banners organized on either side of the camp was Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, and Dan. In other words, a lion, an ox, a human face, an eagle. And in the same way as they were organized as a camp, and in the same way they were organized this way around the center of God's presence in, 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 in Israel moving forward, in the same way that the temple speaks of this, now we find at the end of all time, God on his throne, mighty, terrifying, and in the center, and on either side of these four beings representing the same thing of what we would have seen earlier. We face and are confronted often with the bloodiness of our sin, the wrong that we've done. We try to place ourselves at the center so we don't have to face that. We don't want to press into worship. We don't want to face what those things are. Increasingly, we find at the center of our camp the national flag of a nation. Perhaps our ethnicity. Perhaps ourselves. We find at the center of our camp, and even as we march outward, something that is not God. And so our allegiance increasingly goes to our ethnicity or to our political allegiance or to our educational status or just to our own desires and wants increasingly as a nation. And so we add God to the equation. We don't serve just God alone and let that challenge and change our hearts. We keep adding other things. We don't want to let go of the things that are there. And before long, we find that what stands at the center is an emptiness that our own ego cannot 
fulfill. How is your life organized? What stands at the center of your camp? What is it that, that, that keeps you centered as you move outward? On what journey are you on? Where are you going? Do you know? Without God at the center of who we are, without him at the center of this encampment, without him in the center of our nation and of our lives, we are lost. It's only when we face the bloodiness of our sin that we can then move on to be cleansed. It's only when we own those things and, and organize ourselves with him at the center that then everything else from our politics to our sexuality to our ethnicity to our allegiances of any kind get filtered through that that we have any hope as individuals or as a nation. Israel camped around the presence of God. They didn't move without that presence at the center of who they were. And it's reflected at the end of all time when in front of a throne with a sea of glass sparkling like crystal. There's this lion, ox, human face, and eagle, these standards on either side, and they keep singing and saying, day and night, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come, the Yahweh that exists throughout time and space, who needs no one but wants us. Don't edge God out to the margins. Don't let your ego drive that to that point. Organize your life around the presence of God. Recognize that while he is holy and terrifying and only to be approached in a way that he ordains, that we can still find his provision in the middle of that and that there is a covenantal agreement that we have that gives us a boldness to engage him. This morning, if you've never partaken of that, I want to invite you in this moment Realize your sin, realize your hopelessness of condition, but realize the provision found in Jesus Christ. Repent of that and turn to that today. And for those of us who have been Christians a long time, we have forgotten the screams of the animals and the bloodiness of our sin. Let us remember that moment and come back so that we can have joy again in our salvation and can join once again the throngs that call out to him. This morning, Lord, as we come before you, we are gathered in this place. In the center of this encampment is your presence. The beings would cry out, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit that makes us all one. So Lord, today, we repent of our sin. We lay aside those things that would reorganize our lives in a way that would be idolatry, and we, we seek to be organized around you at the center, God. I ask, I pray, I plead with you this morning that in this place, and for those that are tuning into this, God, that you'd restructure, reorganize how we think, 
as we approach our worship here this morning by your Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10 goes on after talking about the covenant. Something that I want us to consider, it says literally, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not divisiveness. And then this, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and even more as time goes on. Don't lose track. Don't give up the meeting together. And let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for our people, our leaders. But look to how you're organizing your life. What is at the center of your camp? What is in the center of your movement? And of how you're living out your life? What is the filter through which you see things? What standard stands at the center? Then finally this. I would leave you today with a simple prayer. Also drawn out of the book of Numbers. Chapter 6, verses 24 and 26. It references Yahweh three different times in a Trinitarian fashion. It's a blessing that Aaron was to give. And it goes this way, and I give it to you today as you go forward. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you or turn his face towards you and grant you peace. And may your life be organized with Christ in the center. Father, as we seek to walk this world, guide us as your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.